The Trouble with Transformation, a serialised podcast by Alison Wee. Chapter 17. Hard Hobbies to Break. The hunt for your notebook was on. By the following Friday, Danny and I had managed to rummage through the entire contents of our house, from the garage to the top floor. Every time Cat and Mr Bell went out, we turned another room over. We'd rifled through the filing cabinets in the home office, but all the paperwork in there was surprisingly organised and dated within the past few years. Cat's closets also drew a blank. Her clothes and accessories were all neatly stacked and a lot less cluttered than I remember. It must have been down to her recent foray into KonMari tidying. There was only one place left, the attic. We tried to get in earlier, but Kat kept popping out of nowhere and interfering with our plans. On Tuesday, after watching Dr Wilson's file, we'd only managed to get through a room or two before she had arrived home early from her wine and creativity club. Let's go out for ice cream, she'd said. It's such a hot evening, and wouldn't it be delightfully naughty to be out on a school night? With Kat, it often feels naughty to be in on a school night. She's always having visitors and throwing parties. If you had any academic aspirations for me, Dad, you should have stuck around to do the job yourself. You should know that homework doesn't even come close to the top of Kat's priority list. Top ten in a pinch. By the time we'd arrived home from ice cream in a beach stroll to work it off, it was late, so we had to leave off the search for the following day. On Wednesday afternoon, Danny came round to mine again, but Kat caught sight of us as we were heading from the garage to the stairs. She was short a mahjong player for her weekly game with the Lings, so she roped us in. Despite the vast number of cocktails they consumed, Kat and the Lings played at a furious pace. When I finally tumbled into bed well after midnight, my head was a jumble of playing tiles and your notebook remained forgotten for another night. On Thursday, Danny tried to sneak over after dinner, but Mum Acosta pounced as he was heading out the door. Apparently, after slinking into the house so late the night before, reeking of fruit mocktails, nothing short of a trip to the hospital was going to come between Danny and his homework. And if Danny thought for a second he could push the issue, that trip to the hospital would come from Mama Costa herself. Finally, the next night, we got lucky. Mr Bell was driving an Instagram influencer to a red carpet gala on the Gold Coast. Kat had flown down to Melbourne that morning for a shopping weekend, and the Costas were heading out to a rotary dinner. The theme was bad luck, due to it being Friday the 13th. I sneaked over Danny's wall to fetch him, but I was too early. The Costas were just stepping out of their front door. I scrambled into a bush to wait and nearly died with silent laughter as Papa Costa ambled by, dressed in a skin-tight black cat suit. Mama Costa was not wearing lycra. She had a ladder made out of loo rolls strapped to her chest. I wouldn't exactly call it a sophisticated look, but she carried it with her usual resolve. We won't be late, she called to Danny as she expertly unstrapped her rungs and threw them onto the back seat of their car. Once they'd gone, I hovered in the bush a few more minutes, making sure the coast was clear. I was just about to step out and brush myself down when the garage door lifted 
and Danny's brother Paul wheeled out his bicycle. He was on his way to meet his girlfriend Janice at the Glitz, no doubt. Oi, numbskull, Paul said to Danny, who'd just appeared at the garage door. Better stay away from your girlfriend's house. Who knows what Cat would have you doing tonight? Pulling out the Ouija board? You might get to meet Ginger's dad. A spiteful gleam lit his eyes. I fought the temptation to snuff it out. See what kind of moron comments you've set me up for? Sometimes I wonder how Danny and Paul can share the same genes. She's not my girlfriend, knobhead, Danny said. Anyway, Ginger's mum's not going to be there. Ooh, kissy, kissy. Paul wrapped his arms around himself and made loud, smooching noises. All that action must have been too much for his brain to process because he lost his balance and the bike went tumbling. Paul grabbed for it and missed. The gear wheel jabbed into his shin. Ah! I broke into a huge grin. Karma, I whispered from under the hedge as Paul tenderly eased back onto his bike and cycled down the road. So there we were, Friday night, up in the attic, picking through Cat's mountain of possessions, trying to find your prized notebook. At first I told myself I had no interest in the machine other than to make sure the blueprints didn't find their way back to you. But after sleeping on it for a few days, I realised there were two good reasons for getting my hands on that book. First of all, it was the key to understanding who you were and who you might be now since recent evidence suggested you weren't quite as dead as initially thought. Secondly, possession of that book placed me in a very strong bargaining position. Yep, that's right. I planned to use it as leverage. If the ghost of Dr. Wilson expected me to meekly hand it over to Jim, he had another thing coming. I wasn't about to let you just wander back into my life after ten years, take your notebook with barely a thank you very much, and saunter out again. No way. I wouldn't be giving anything away without a trade-off, an agreed face-to-face meeting. Then you would have to give me some answers. All we had to do now was find that book. Danny and I kept reassuring each other. Finding the notebook was doable. We wouldn't let ourselves be put off by the fact several government agents had tried and failed. We had advantages the others didn't have. We had free access to cat stuff and the time to search it thoroughly. And we had Dr. Wilson's clue. Finally, and Danny said we shouldn't underestimate this in terms of hidden potential. I was your daughter. Surely there was some sort of hereditary way of thinking I could tap into. Surely that gave us some sort of an edge. The possibility that Cat may have inadvertently thrown out the notebook during the move from London to Devon, or Devon to Bottlenose Beach, didn't bear thinking about. We had to trust that the notebook was still carefully hidden amongst Cat's possessions, and if we turned over enough stuff, we'd eventually find it. Any bright ideas? Danny asked after we'd scrounged about for several hours. I shrugged wearily. I can't get over the amount of junk up here. My voice muffled as I peered into yet another box of clothes. I pulled out a gold sequin mini dress and slipped it over my t-shirt and jeans. 
turning this way and that, I cast a shimmer of gold speckles up and down the wall. I wonder how many of her KonMari efforts ended up tucked away up here. I pulled a top hat from a box and popped it on my head, giving it a jaunty tilt. I think it's a pretty safe bet the notebook is somewhere up here. Trouble is, if Kat didn't actually know Terry, what hope do I have of knowing where to look? Well, surely not everything he did was an act. Your mum, I mean Kat, Danny still struggled to use her first name, must have known him to some extent. How did they meet? At a club, I think. I laughed. No wonder Kat knew nothing about him. I tugged at a long cream halter dress, drawing it from its tissue-filled box like a ribbon of silken handkerchiefs. I slipped it over my head and three-stepped across the floor, the hem of the dress kicking up dust bunnies as it swept in a wide arc. Well, hello there, I said, mimicking Kat and placing my hands in a waltz hold on a dressmaker's mannequin. Why, aren't you Mr Terry Jones, famous record producer? Excuse me? What did you say? You want to dance with little old me? Well, don't I feel like the cat who's got the cream? I sat the mannequin on a box, then pulled out another and started to sift through. So that's kind of romantic, Danny said. Love at first sight. I suppose, I muttered, nosing through a packet of postcards. The first couple were of famous places in London. Big Ben, the London Eye. I flipped the cards over, looking for a clue of some sort. Aside from a neatly written date, they were blank. All except for one. The last card held a description made out in Kat's handwriting. First date with the enigmatic Terence Jones. Saw King Kong. Naomi Watts is a siren queen. When I turned it over, I was surprised to see a picture of a little dark brick building with a triangular roof. The lettering on the building read, Lexi, I am a cinema. Love me. Wow. My chest felt light and airless. It was a little cinema in London. Just like our cinema in Ilfracombe. Just like the Glitz. I laid down the cards and surveyed Kat's boxes with fresh eyes. All those records, clothes, photos and cards. Turn the page, her favourite mug said. Kat hadn't turned the page at all. She'd just hidden the book on the top shelf. Since receiving that note on the beach, there were moments when I'd hated you. When a boiling ferocity rose so sharply inside me, I thought I might combust with anger. But when I thought about Kat, that perpetual smile masking who knows what, all the questions she's never gotten answers to, I just felt like a wrung-out sponge. A rebellious tear slipped out and I covered it with an exaggerated yawn. If anyone would understand my feelings right now, it would be Danny. But right now I was just too tired to process anything. Well... I said, kneading my face with my hands and stretching my arms up high. 
I don't think we're going to find what we're looking for tonight. (laughs) I'd better go to bed. Danny's smile slipped infinitesimally, then forced a recovery. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Ma and Pa will be home soon anyway, so I'd better be off. You will wait for me until next week, though. He and the twins were heading off the following morning for a week's sports camp. The twins for volleyball, Danny for soccer. I'd promised to hold off the search until his return on Friday afternoon. I wouldn't do it for anyone but you, I said, punching Danny lightly on the arm. I couldn't handle your sad puppy-eyed face if I found Terry's notebook without you. Not that you've considered my situation at all. Hey? Me? All by myself. Nigel, no friends. While you're off with your soccer buddies, having lunchtime sausage sizzles and whatnot. So Brian's definitely on lunch detention then? Yep, all week. Earlier that day, Cooties had caught Brian putting lighter fluid in Betty Jansen's electric pencil sharpener. Unfortunately for Betty, Cooties didn't have time to shout a warning before Betty turned the sharpener on. Betty didn't look so flash coming out of sickbay this afternoon, Danny said. I nodded. It wasn't pretty. Betty's right cheek was pink and shiny as a billiard ball, and the remains of her eyelashes were little more than crusty balls of char. That must be wreaking havoc with her peripheral vision, Danny added. It's amazing Brian didn't get suspended. Ha! I scoffed. Suspension would be more reward than punishment for him. A few days off school? Yes, please. Cootie wants to hit him where it hurts. That boy lives for lunch. Huh, yeah. Danny hesitated a moment, then said, So are you still meeting him at the Glitz tomorrow, then? Sure, I said, my tone deliberately light. He won't be on detention tomorrow. Why wouldn't I? I knew a million reasons why, but after spending several hours sifting through the bones of Kat's relationship graveyard, I was in no mood to unpack my own issues. The expression on Danny's face told me he could give me a million reasons of his own, not least Betty Jansen's overly buffed cheek. He lifted the attic trap door and swung his legs onto the ladder. Just as he was about to disappear, he hesitated. His head hovered over the manhole rim, freakish and disembodied. You're better than this, G, he said. The hairs on the back of my neck prickled up defensively. What's that supposed to mean? Danny looked me in the eye and said, It means exactly what you think it means. Then the attic trapdoor closed. He was gone.